political gridlock. It stokes the flames of Americans' disdain for their country's national politics. One side blocks the other side because they can't let the other side get any credit, ever. This means that our very powerful and very rich country has a hard time getting anything done because usually petty, self-interested reasons. Gridlock leads to bad outcomes. For example, because Congress can't agree on anything, more power falls to the other two branches of government and the checks and balances intended by the founders goes out of whack. Further political gridlock and discord contributes to political uncertainty, which causes businesses to hold off on innovation and investment. For all the pettiness and frustration of political gridlock, it can bring some good outcomes also. Surprising enough. If one side controls everything, then there's nothing to keep them in check. Now, sometimes that works out okay, but some gridlock can bring needed restraint and compromise, especially in areas like spending and deciding to go to war. Even though gridlock can be maddening, if you're able to work through it, it often leads to more lasting reform. You think about it, if reform has bipartisan support, why would either party want to change it later on? Now, as long as sinful, selfish, and divided people fill the government, and namely the halls of Washington, D.C., gridlock won't go away. Today, we encounter another unfortunate reality of a fallen world. Opposition to God's people. Like gridlock... Opposition to God's people frustrates us, it discourages us, it befuddles us, we can't explain it. But also like gridlock, surprising enough, it doesn't have to have the last word. And good can come, even from an unfortunate reality. We're in Ezra chapter 4 this morning. This book and Nehemiah after it, after it deals with the Israelites' return to their homeland after 70 years of being away from it in captivity. We see how they return to the land because of God's sovereign power and care to keep his promises and move in the hearts of people. We've seen also how their return home wasn't the end of the story. It was more like a new beginning for them. Upon their return, we saw how they committed to worship the Lord, even as they rebuilt their city and their temple, and even as they waited for something better. Now, we saw in last week, Ezra chapter 3, how it hinted that the returned exiles experienced opposition upon their return to their homeland. And Ezra 4 this morning provides some more details about what that opposition looked like. So if there's a main idea or takeaway from our passage today, it's that God's people should respond to the world's opposition with faithfulness and endurance. Knowing that opposition to them is actually rebellion against God, and nothing can stop his purposes. Ezra puts the theme of opposition front and center of this chapter. We know that because he includes opposition not just from the time when the events of the book took place, but also opposition that continued even after the events of this book took place. In verses 1 to 5, we'll see the subtle and crafty 
opposition. And verses 7 to 24, we'll see opposition that's more unfair and just obvious or overt in nature. So those are the two major headings we'll be under today. We'll start with the subtle and crafty opposition, and we'll read starting off with verses 1 to 5. So you'll find that printed in your bulletin, or if you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can open to there as well. So Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezraharan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We read this passage a little too quickly. We read this passage hastily. It may lead us to conclude that the request to join in on the temple project was innocent. And the response of refusing their request seems unnecessarily harsh. We may read this a little too quickly and think that the Israelites were the, like the cool kids on the playground. Everybody wanted to be a part of them. And then the people who made the request to join in, to join in on their fun, you know, they just wanted more friends. The Israelites were mean and bullies and shut them out. That's not the case. When we read this passage carefully, not hastily, we find that the request is not so innocent and the Israelites' response is not harsh. Let's examine both of these groups more closely. We'll start with the people who made this request. Put them under the microscope, so to speak. Who were these people who requested to join in on the temple project? Can you see in verse 1 how it tips us off to their true nature and intent? What are they called in verse 1? They were adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And notice how they tried to persuade the returned exiles in verse 2. They said, we worship your God as you do. As we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now that word, your God, should tip us off a little bit too. It is not their God, it is your God. Second Kings 17 fills in the background of these, these uh, inhabitants who made the request to Israel. They tell us that the king of Assyria took the northern tribes of Israel captive and replace them by placing other foreigners in their land, the capital of which was Samaria. So the people described here are the group known as the Samaritans. We see them pop up in the New Testament as well. So the Assyrian king wanted these new settlers to know the local religion. So he sent a Jewish priest along with them to teach them the local religion, to teach them the Torah, the law of God. 
But 2 Kings 17 adds more details. They say these new people who lived in Samaria, while they started to learn the ways of the Lord, they still worshiped their own gods alongside the one true God. So here we have this blended form of worship. And attempting to blend your own gods and your own standards with the one true God and his standards, that's called syncretism. A very fancy word. You're trying to synchronize both of them, and it can't be done. This is not genuine worship of God, blending together your own gods with the one true God. That violates the very first commandment of not having any other gods before him. So these inhabitants claim to worship God just like the returned exiles did. Why, that might seem true, what they're saying in verse 2, but it was not true. It should be a warning to us, friends, that this pull of syncretism, of, of blending together our own gods with the worship of the one true God, the pull of syncretism is real, it's dangerous, and it's deceiving. I don't know if, about you, but how many times have you heard from somebody else that they don't follow just one religion, but they sort of pick and choose from whatever sounds good from multiple religions? And that's their philosophy. Again, this is something that might sound good, but just because something sounds good does not mean that it is true. Jesus said that if you are not for him, you are against him. Even if you're polite, respectable, believe parts of the Bible, and have quote-unquote Christian values, but you do not trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, friends, that means you are against him. You refuse to do what he has called you to do, in fact, demanded you to do. You refuse to acknowledge who he really is, no matter how polite you are. So the person who picks and chooses what he or she believes is the person who has rejected Christ's authority for their own authority. We, too, should be careful of this pull of syncretism lest we blend outside values with biblical ones, lest we blend values like consumeristic values that are selfish and all about getting what we want, pragmatic values that are all about what works and what sounds good, cultural values which are all about what's trending and what's favorable, political values all about what my party tells me to prioritize. We should be careful lest we blend all of these things with biblical values. Christianity blended with the world is not Christianity at all. One preacher I've heard uh, uses this helpful illustration. He says, imagine a battalion fighting to plant their flag on the hilltop. If they betray everything that flag stands for in the fights to the top of the hill, what have they accomplished when they plant the flag? If they adopt all the practices of their enemies in their desperation to win the battle, have they really defeated their enemies? Beware of the pull of syncretism, the pull of, to blend the world with our devotion to the Lord. This is what happened to the Samaritans. So after the Israelites wouldn't budge on the Samaritans' request, we discover that the inhabitants of their true nature and their true motives Verses 4 and 5. You see them there. 
If they couldn't control and manipulate the construction of the temple from the inside, then they would disrupt and frustrate the project from the outside. So for them, the temple was not about God. The temple was about them. Anytime we make church about us, not Christ, we oppose it just like these people did, just like the Samaritans did. The church does not exist as an avenue to get your way, to show off your talent, to gain influence. It exists, rather, to serve others and honor Christ by submitting to his ways, by showing off his glory, by seeing his kingdom spread across the globe. And and tragically enough, the the Bible actually makes provisions for these outsiders to become part of the community of faith, but they refuse to take this route. The inhabitants of the land could have used these provisions. Instead, they attempted to deceive God's people in order to wield influence and control. So that is the people who made the request. That's them under the microscope. And now we could see the Israelites' response a little bit more clearly when we put their, them under the microscope. We looked at the request, now we look at the response. The response in verse 3 makes a little more sense now, doesn't it? They know the truth about these inhabitants. They see through their attempted deceit. They even attempt to dismiss them diplomatically. They say, hey guys, listen, King Cyrus commissioned us and us alone to do this, and not you guys. Now we think about it. The Israelites could have responded differently here. They could have responded differently. As poor and weak newcomers to this land, one could argue that these Israelites should have worked to make friends, not enemies. They should have pulled a page out of Dale Carnegie's book and to win friends and influence people. But they understood two big priorities in in their response. The first priority they understood was that compromise corrupts the community. Compromise corrupts the community. That's what happened to their forefathers, isn't it? You can read in the books before Ezra, from Judges all the way to 2 Kings and even before those books. Those books show the consequences of letting those who do not worship the one true God infiltrate the community, erode their holiness, and erode their walk with the Lord. We need to guard the church, Christ's new covenant community, in order to keep it pure. We need to watch for the crafty and deceitful schemes of the world, the messages that sound good, but that will compromise our beliefs. One of the ways we do that is practically we should be careful about the people we bring into the church and when necessary, the people we see out of the church. Now listen, we want to nuance this as we have in weeks past. I just, I think of the sermon on 1 Corinthians 5 on church discipline. We're not saying that we don't welcome anybody uh, to our church gatherings. We want to welcome everyone because the Bible calls everyone to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin and a good standing before God the Father. Everybody's called to that. 
But we say the only people we bring into the church and say that they belong to the church as members of Christ's body, those only people are those who have actually repented and believed. Those who have actually done that. Let me put this in different terms. Showing up at a church gathering does not automatically make you part of the church. If simply showing up is our criteria of becoming part of the church, then we would risk telling people who have never repented and trusted in Christ that they are just fine. And in turn, we would confuse the entire church about what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is not just being here. It's not less than that. So friend, if you have come for a while but do not believe in Jesus or have not made that belief known in baptism or had it affirmed in church membership, friend, you are welcome here. I hesitate to say that you are fine. Please do something about it today. So listen, and we also want to say in saying all of this about guarding the church's purity, the community's purity, we preach Ezra 4, verse 3, not as those who have scratched and crawled our way to belong to Christ's community. We preach it as those who know we are like those inhabitants who are disqualified and should have nothing to do with this community. That's who we are. We were on the outside, opposing Christ, Jesus sought us out and died in our place. We are those that Ephesians 2 describes. Those who are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is Jesus who has qualified us to be part of his body, his community. We have not qualified ourselves. So the leaders of the Israelites rejected the inhabitants' requests because they prioritized guarding the community's purity. They knew that compromise corrupts the community. But they also understood a second priority as well that informed the way they responded to this request. Second big priority they understood is they prioritized remaining faithful to God rather than having the world's approval. They prioritized remaining faithful to God rather than having the world's approval. Maybe they learned from somebody like Daniel. You know, Daniel would have went before them. Daniel was among the first group that was taken captive from Israel to Babylon. You know Daniel, the lion's den guy? You know the story right before? You know how the lion's den story builds up? It happened because there was a decree from the king, and the king's cronies convinced the king, um, egotistical as he was, that nobody in the kingdom was allowed to pray to any other god besides him. Amazing enough. And what if after that decree, Daniel heard that the de that decree was made, he'd been around long enough. He'd seen, he'd seen the transfer of power from king to king, the transfer of power even from empire to empire. Daniel's no stranger to decrees like this. So Daniel chapter 6 says that he went up into his room and he did as he had previously done. Closed the door, opened the window, gave thanks, and prayed to God. 
You could think that uh, Daniel was known for, uh, by several different kings, by all the kings that he served. He was known for his excellent work, his character, his wisdom. And when possible, the outside world should know us for the same traits. But Daniel received opposition, just like here before the lion's den. And instead of bending in order to turn that opposition into approval, Daniel remained faithful. So Daniel 6, he went up to his room, prayed, gave thanks to God, just as he has always done. Friend, if you follow Jesus, you will receive opposition. If you truly follow Jesus, you will receive opposition. It's a promise made in God's word over and over again. Jesus tells us that the world hates us. If it does, know that it hated, hated him before it hates us. Paul told Timothy, his protege, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So maybe the opposition we receive looks different from the lion's den. Maybe it looks different from the return Ezra, exiles in Ezra. Maybe for us, I don't know if, if you're like me, have you ever walked away from a conversation with somebody who you know does not believe in Jesus and you regret not saying know you should have said, what you know you could have said. But when we are the minority as a Christian, whether you are at work, whether you are among your family or among your friends, when we are the minority, just, I know, I'm sure you know, we will be tempted to ease up on standing for what's right and true in order to avoid opposition in order to keep the peace, in order even to keep things from being awkward, in order even to gain approval, we'll ease up. We'll be tempted to skirt away from subjects that we know make people uncomfortable. Now, I understand, we'll qualify this again. I understand that there is a better and best time to speak. I understand that our character and our actions should represent Christ as much as our words do. And I understand that we should be gracious to ourselves and learn, and we can grow in this. But the bottom line is this. Do you prioritize faithfulness to God over having approval from the world? Do you prioritize being faithful to the Lord more than having approval from the world? I think sometimes to wake us up to this, we just need to cut to the chase in conversation sometimes. I know there's a better and best time, like we said, but just to avoid this temptation, just cut to the chase, cut right to the matter. Listen, listen I, I care about you. Jesus is central to my life. Do you, do you know Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Just, how hard is that question? You don't need a PhD to ask that question. You need a little bit of guts. The Lord is right by your side. We prioritize being faithful to God more than having the world's approval. So when we take that bold route, we refuse to compromise and we remain faithful. Doesn't always work out for us, does it? Doesn't always work out well. I mean, look at verses four and five. The returned exiles who stood for the Lord ended up discouraged, ended up afraid, ended up frustrated for years. Not just for a little while, for years. The gap of time, verse 5, describes is probably about 15 to 20 years. That's how long they couldn't work on the temple. 
So we said that we must prioritize being faithful to God above gaining the world's approval. Verses 4 to 5 tell us that we must prioritize being faithful to God above securing the best results and circumstances. We may remember Joseph when he fled from his boss's wife and her advances and said that he would not sin against God in this way. And where did that end up? Ended up in prison. Jesus resisted the, te- the devil's temptations of having all the kingdoms of the world. He remained faithful to the mission the Father gave to him. And where did that end him up? The cross. To be near the Lord and faithful to the Lord is better than any result we can get apart from him. Any result we can get if it means that we are not near him. So I think we've covered the first round of opposition uh, of the return to exile sufficiently enough. More opposition comes in verses 6 to 24. This time it is of an overt and unfair nature. And we talked about this when we started our time, but Ezra organizes this chapter to present the theme of ongoing opposition to Israel. So it begins uh, with the exile's return and their attempt to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And opposition continues as they attempt to rebuild the entire city outside of the temple. So verses 1 to 5, they deal with the opposition to really the first generation of the returned exiles. Verse 6 shows that that opposition continued into ongoing generations of the returned exiles, even including during the reign of Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, who was the king of the Persian Empire during the time of the Book of Esther. Verses 7 to 23 move forward again to show that opposition was still around even during the reign of a guy named Artaxerxes, the king who reigned during the time that Ezra and Nehemiah And you look at verse 24, it picks up the story where verse 5 left off. So Ezra wrote when the Israelites were not sure whether or not they could finish rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, but the temple in Ezra's time was already done. So what Ezra's doing is he inserts his own generation's story into the story of the previous generation. He says, just as the previous generation overcame opposition and finished the temple, so God will overcome opposition in our generation so that we can finish rebuilding the city. So that's the summary in mind. With that summary, let's read verses 6 to 24. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susan, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. 
This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province, beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Raymond, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who rolled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tributes, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until the decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahu and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews of Jerusalem and by force and power made them to cease. And the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year reign of King Darius of Persia. Like the last section, let's examine the opposition and the response to it. The inhabitants of the land who opposed the Israelites who returned continued their opposition into the next generation. They made several appeals to the king in order to obtain an official order to get them to cease and desist the reconstruction of the temple and the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. We see in their letter, they pulled no punches. They filled their letter with flattery, mischaracterizations, and outright lies. Verses 8 to 10. See that they list as many people as they can as senders of this letter. This gives the impression that they speak on behalf of the whole region. Everybody's saying this, not just them. In verse 12, Notice that they call Jerusalem's holiness rebellious and evil. Verse 13, they tell the king that he will lose money. His bottom line will be affected. The GDP will decrease if they rebuild Jerusalem. In verse 14, they tell the king that they simply have his best interest in mind. They are loyal to him above all else. They seek to stroke the king's ego. In verse 15, they urge the king to do his research. Research the city. He will see for himself how rebellious and wicked they are. 
right? So worldly people are those who rebel against God by refusing to submit to him and believe in Christ. And godly people are those who rebel against the world by refusing to submit to it and refusing to believe in themselves. The world will remain polite to our faithfulness to God as long as we keep that faithfulness to ourselves. As long as we never bring it up in conversation. As long as it makes no demands on what we want or how we live. The king's response begins in verse 17. To see it there. He opens in verses 18 and 19 and says that their letters have been read before him. And research about Jerusalem has been done. We've been in our Wednesday night class. We've, it's practically been English class of late. Uh, and you can see here that this is passive voice. The subject is not stated. In other words, what the king says in verses 18 and 19 is that he's not the one who has read the letter. He's not the one who's done this research. Somebody else did it for him. So yes, Israel was once a strong and mighty nation under the reigns of those like David and Solomon. But the king should know that those days were long gone. They were far weaker, far smaller than what they were once were. They posed no real threat. And further, if the king did full research, he would have discovered that one of the kings before him decreed and promised to let them rebuild their city. This was shoddy research. The inhabitants who, who opposed Israel, the Israelites, they used half-truths. And King Artaxerxes bought it. He was too lazy to analyze it. Later in verse 22, we find that central to King Artaxerxes' motives is not the rights of his people that he represents. It was his own power and interests. We know all too well when rulers are too lazy to think for themselves, to do their own analysis, to know their own laws, and filter everything through how it affects their image and their power. That result happened. King Artaxerxes reminds me of people who just believe the common criticisms of the Bible without ever having read the Bible themselves, or without ever having read the Bible on its own terms. He reminds me of people who believe the caricature of Christians without ever seriously engaging a Christian in conversation. He reminds me of people who dismiss Jesus without ever having analyzed his claims. My friends, urge the people around you, and yourself included, not to be gullible and lazy like Artaxerxes, not to be satisfied with a life of distraction to be willing to listen and to learn. So the inhabitants letter and the king's response, it led to verse 23's outcome. See that this reconstruction, they halted it by force. So will the Israelites ever finish the new city? Will they ever finish rebuilding? We get a note of hope in verse 24. As Ezra returns to the story, story he started with in verses 1 to 5, the construction of the temple. 
Verse 24 declares to the generation whose work to rebuild the city was stopped, that the generation before them had their work to rebuild the temple stopped also, but that stoppage had an expiration date. They finished their work. So the question for us, do you feel stuck? Do you feel like your life isn't going anywhere? Like nothing is going right? Perhaps even like God isn't listening? It reminds me of a story I heard from our Luann Brown, uh, who, know, who has a friend in the United Arab Emirates in the, near Saudi Arabia whose husband uh, abuses her and her children, but who she has to flee from. And the courts have continually not protected her, where she's ended up in shelters where there are no other Christians. And she's had to deal with her 10-year-old daughter asking her, Mom, I thought God heard and answered prayers. Why is he doing it? This chapter tells us to prioritize faithfulness to God over favorable circumstances. My goodness, is that easier said than done? How do you endure in faithfulness? How do you keep going when your life seems to be going nowhere? Do what Ezra did. Look at how God has worked in the past. This is what he does in verse 24. That's his encouragement to the current generation. He tells them, guys, hasn't God brought us through difficulty in the past? Hasn't he brought his difficult, hasn't he brought his people through difficulty? Hasn't he brought you through difficulty in your past? Will he forget you now? When you are stuck and everything seems to be going wrong, a good marching order is 1 Peter 5, verse 6. You may have heard it before. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The proper time. That's God's time. Um, friends, let your Savior's death and resurrection be your Ezra 4, 24. Let your Savior's death and resurrection be your note of hope that causes you to endure in faithfulness. Let your Savior's death and resurrection assure you that 1 Peter 5, verse 6 is true. Let your Savior's death and resurrection convince you that opposition will not last, that opposition will not do you in, that opposition will even draw you closer to God. Because Jesus, our Savior, endured opposition to the point of the grave. But what the world meant for evil by opposing and killing Jesus, God meant for good. His death was not a defeat, but a victory, and through it he saved his people. Jesus remained faithful to the will of the Father. That ended, up in the, ended him up in the grave. But the story does not end there. God rose him from the dead, exalted him at the proper time, and gave him the name that is above every name. And now, friends, Jesus will return and bring all opposition and evil to an end. And he will bring us, his people, with him. So let's keep going. Let's pray.
Lord, you leadeth us, O oh, blessed thought. And we thank you for the firm foundation of your word. That through the deep waters, even though you call us to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. Lord, we thank you that we who on Jesus have leaned for repose, you will not desert to our foes. Opposition will not do us in. We understand, Lord, we want to be ready that in the world we will have much trouble. We will be pulled and tempted. We'll be tempted to compromise, tempted to blend, tempted to ease up, tempted to skirt away. Oh Lord, make us strong, knowing that the world may oppose us, but that you overcame the world, and in you we have peace. We cannot do this apart from you, so please glorify your great name through us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray.